Hello and welcome to the Board Shorts podcast brought to you by Get On Board Australia, the destination for new and aspiring board members and company directors. This podcast is called Board Shorts because boards and governance can sometimes be a dry topic. So I'm bringing you valuable, easy to digest information on board and company director related topics, concepts and ideas in 30 minutes or less. Whether you're looking to join a board or thrive in the boardroom, this podcast is designed just for you. My name is Lisa Cook and I'm your host. As founder and managing director of Get On Board Australia, I hope to make this podcast and the information I share valuable and useful to new and aspiring company directors and board members like you. Welcome back to another episode of Diary of a Board Member. I'm so excited to be chatting with you all today and checking back in with you. Today, I'm actually going to be chatting with you all about constitutions and how a constitution can impact or enable your board composition and recruitment. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, It doesn't sound like a very sexy topic, but stick with me. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's important. And it's actually something that I've had on my mind a lot lately as I've been having this conversation with many boards, board members and CEOs. That's stemming a lot from some frustration around their board composition and their I guess their limitations around their board recruitment that come from their current composition and how their current constitution may be stifling uh, some of the evolution that needs to happen on that particular board. So from my conversations that I've had, I've noticed that this topic has the potential to be a philosophical conversation that could go around and around in circles. They're my kind of conversations to have uh, because I find that as you start talking about the different types of clauses that you can find in constitutions, particularly when it comes to board composition and recruitment, the outcomes of those can be both positive and negative and have both intended and unintended consequences. So a lot of it is a balancing act and playing off those outcomes and consequences that come from those various clauses. So to keep today's conversation concise, I'm going to focus on three primary areas of a constitution that play a significant role in board composition and recruitment. Those are terms and term limits, elected versus appointed board members, and nominations committees. Before I jump into this, a few basics that I want to cover when it comes to constitutions. The constitution of your organisation that governs a lot of membership-based organisations, not-for-profits, things like that, even uh, corporate organisations for profit, they're not a set and forget document. They should be reviewed at the very least once every couple years, if not once a year, um, and should be reviewed as and when needed as well. So don't just put it on your board calendar to do every year or two years, but review it when you notice that 
you may be being held back as a board or as an organisation from a clause in your constitution and consider changing it. Also, as governance practices evolve and change and perspectives change and norms change, that's when you should also review your constitution as well to make sure that it's working for you and the goals of the board and organization, not against it. So make sure you set time aside as a board to review that at least every two years, if not annually. And following on from that is to make the changes that you need, that you see can evolve the constitution into something that reflects modern governance practices. And as I said, that works for you and for your goals and operation as a board and as an organization. Generally, in every constitution, it will stipulate how those changes are to be made. Yes, it's a little bit of a pain in the butt, but it's worth spending the time and effort to make those changes so that you're not stifled as a board or organization in any way. And I think something that covers all of that as an umbrella is around engagement with the voting members. If you're lucky enough to be on a board, part of an organization where the members are largely satisfied with how the board operates, satisfied with the organization, it's generally easier to make the constitutional changes you need if your voting members understand why you're doing it and have a general feeling of trust towards you. Stakeholder engagement is a vital exercise of every board, in particular with the chairperson on that board really driving it and reaching out to the voting members. It's an ongoing activity. It's something that needs to be considered part of the role of the board. It's why it's in boardroom boot camp and it helps you to achieve a lot and get a lot done and not be held up unnecessarily due to the politics that naturally exist when you've got voting members who are very passionate about the reason they're part of your organisation. So don't forget that that's an important part and it does have a significant impact to the constitution and to any changes that you're proposing with the constitution and getting those through. And I talk a little bit more on that uh, later in this conversation. Second last point for my constitution basics. Today's podcast, I use the term board members. Now I use this to describe every type of person who sits in a governance position of an organization. Depending on your particular organization's governing legislation and how the organization is set up, whether it's an association, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a company limited by guarantee, whatever it is, that legislation generally has its own language or terms that refer to those people in that position of governance. So know that I'm using the term board member, but I mean it to apply to every definition across the different legislations. And my last point for you to remember please keep in mind every organization and constitution is different and unique and specific to your environment. What I talk about today are generalities, 
from my experience and my perspectives and conversations that I've been having with boards, board members and CEOs, I encourage you to seek legal advice when it comes to your constitution, when it comes to making constitutional changes, particularly that they're worded correctly, that the constitution is drafted correctly and that those proposed changes are done so in a very transparent way, a very above board way where people understand what the changes are that are being made and a legal person can help you with that. And also around interpretations of existing clauses. Uh, That's vitally important for you to keep in mind that when it comes to your specific constitution to please get legal advice if you have any questions around those sort of things. Now to get into today's conversation around how your organization's constitution impacts or enables your board composition and recruitment. Firstly, I want to talk about terms and term limits. Most constitutions define term lengths for board members. And these are usually two or three years at a time, at which point at the end of that time, the board member will need to be reappointed or re-elected. What most constitutions don't have are clauses that govern term limits, and that's defining a maximum number of terms that a board member can serve before they have to step off the board. They have to resign their position. Modern practices that I see with constitutions are in favour of including term limits for board members. And generally that will be around three or four consecutive terms, depending on how long the term is. And generally you'll find two-year or three-year terms. So if you have three lots of two years or four lots of three years, there are variations in between those as well. Personally, I am in favour of term limits. I believe that a good board consistently refreshes itself and that board members do indeed have a use-by date. Sometimes the requirements of a board and an organisation start to get to a point where they go beyond our capacity to meet those requirements. And we also have a use-by date. We can only commit to and serve and be engaged with an organisation for a certain amount of time. Most of the time, we usually have a lot more going on in our lives as directors, not just that organisation, and we can reach a a use-by or a burnout point. So, You can either decide that for yourself and leave it up to fate, uh, so don't have term limits in your constitution, or you can instigate those as a specified period of time, and I am in favour of those. The alternative perspective to this that I hear the argument for is, why would you want to have good board members leave the board? And my counter argument to that is because I believe that there are so many other great people who can fill that board seat and better serve that organization that potentially I could. So that's not being driven by your ego and just 
keeping the seat filled and holding that position because it means something more to you than you're there to add value to the organization. And who's to say that I'm the best person for the job at that point? For many who feel that way about why having why have good board members leave is a case of better the devil you know than the devil you don't. People don't want to end up with crappy people around the board table and I can understand why but then I put the responsibility back onto the board to run a consistent and good recruitment process that brings in great people and continues to strengthen the organization iteration after iteration of the board. Where I have seen the absence of term limits become a problem is when you have average or less than average board members remaining on the board indefinitely. When you have no mechanism for removal, these people become a burden and they actually take up a seat that could be better filled by someone else. To many people, the board seat is a very prestigious position And it becomes a symbol of importance and relevance. Unfortunately, I see this happen most with the people who are not the board members that you are sad to be losing from something like a term limit. So I feel like it's for this reason alone, and that's having a mechanism for people to get off that aren't serving well. That's the reason I believe that term limits should be in every constitution, You can deal with the board members who are outstanding by engaging them as independent committee members or in some other way as an advisor to the board or giving them a job to volunteer around their area of expertise. And then if the need arises, invite them back onto the board after they've had their required time away, which is usually the length of a regular board member's term, like I was talking earlier either two or three years, then they can come back on the board. But I would hope that your board is running a great recruitment process that's consistently being done so that you're not having to bring back all the old board members because you can't find anyone new. That shows me that your recruitment process may be a little unhealthy. So the second thing to focus on is elected versus appointed board members. Constitutions have largely provided for more elected board members than appointed board members. Now, elected board members are those people who are voted in at an annual general meeting or a general meeting by the voting members, whoever those voting members are defined as in the Constitution. Appointed board members have been selected and appointed into the role of a board member by the existing board members. So they're done without members voting them in and therefore can be appointed to the board at any time during the year. It doesn't have to coincide or be at an AGM or a general meeting. Generally, as per constitutions, elected board members have few hurdles to jump when nominating for a board position. Oftentimes, all I see them having to do is complete a nomination form, which is usually a basic form asking for their contact details and perhaps their professional CV, and then have that nomination form co-signed or seconded by a member or two members. 
and have it submitted within a certain time period before the AGM or general meeting. Sometimes they'll be required to be a member of the organization, but sometimes not. So that's a very low bar to set for people coming into the board. And I've seen that that largely results in subpar or average candidates putting themselves forward. I hear that it's oftentimes because they think they can do a better job than the existing board, or they have a bee in their bonnet about a certain issue and think that being on the board allows them to fix it personally. From the perceived perspective that the board has little control over selecting elected board members, I've started to notice more and more organisations changing their constitutions to have a higher ratio of appointed board members than elected board members. So that's shifting that. So say if you have five elected and two appointed, that it may shift to five appointed and two elected. I personally sit on a board where we flipped the ratio Uh, without much drama. Uh, But I've also witnessed a different organisation receive some backlash about their move to more appointed board members than elected members. It's worth considering this clause in your constitution and whether it's worth changing it to have more appointed than elected board members and why that may suit your board and or organisation. As I mentioned earlier, it's really important to keep in mind the current sentiment of your voting members. Is now a good time to introduce a change of this significance? Or do you need to do some political groundwork and education before making such a leap? That's up to you to decide and make that determination. However, if you think that you won't be able to get that type of change voted in, consider that you may actually have more control over elected members than you may initially think. And this brings me to my next point, committees, and in particular, a nominations committee. Usually the constitution empowers the board to form committees as and when needed, and that those committees will be governed by a terms of reference or a charter, as it's sometimes called. It's a good idea to check that your constitution includes that provision. If it does, one of the committees you should consider forming is a nominations committee. And that committee is usually delegated the task of recruiting new board members. If you don't have the ability to form committees, I would really encourage your board to consider proposing that as a constitutional amendment at your next AGM. Committees help spread the workload uh, and in particular this nominations committee can come in very handy when it comes to recruiting new board members. So the nominations committee primarily does all of the groundwork to lay the foundation for a great recruitment process to occur. Think of things like conducting a skills audit of the board uh, and any other committee members if they're independent if necessary. They consider the organization's strategy and how that influences the skills required around the board table. Board member succession planning, so who's renominating, who needs to step down, who's choosing to step down, etc., and how does that impact how many people you need on the board going forward. If you have any diversity goals, and how the whole recruitment process will run that year for both elected and appointed board members. 
After the board approves that process, the nominations committee will also facilitate much of the actual board recruitment activities as per their outline. For example, they'll do things such as advertising for the vacancy, receiving and reviewing the applications, conducting the interviews, and then finishing it off with making recommendations on who to appoint or who they want to put forward for election. It's wise to set the nomination or appointment process each year so that you're addressing the primary board and organization requirements. So a really basic example on that is if you've come to a point where you need finance skills, then that should be something that you're requesting information and evidence on as part of the nomination or application form. Many constitutions include a clause that allows the board to set and vary the nomination process as it deems necessary. And that is good flexibility to have. Again, if your constitution does not have that, it might be worth considering including that change. The nominations committee then can determine whether the nomination from someone who's looking to be an elected member can be accepted and put through to a vote at the AGM or general meeting or not be accepted as a, at all as it doesn't meet the requirements. So shifting that perspective that, that the nominations committee has that ability to not accept a nomination is a real shift away from where I see a lot of boards and nominations committees operate. Sometimes they put forward their recommendations to the voting members on who should be voted in, but they still end up putting all nominated parties forward. I have heard and seen nomination committees have the ability to not accept a nomination because it doesn't meet the requirements of the organisation. So doing it that way enables the board to retain much of the control of who ends up around the table. Now, I know that sounds quite dictatorial. However, I believe that the board are in the most informed position to make the decision on who is needed around the board table to meet the current and future needs of the organisation and of the board. The board must, however, engage and educate the voting members on the board composition and the reasoning or rationale behind the composition and recruitment approach being taken. That's not only good stakeholder relations, but it demonstrates that the board has deeply considered its role and influence on organisation and how best to set itself up for success and for organizational sustainability. Largely, I find that if you engage the voting members on why you're doing a particular thing a particular way, in this instance, why you're running your nominations and voting process in that way for your board, they will largely come along and understand why you're doing it. And if you do it that way, like I said, you bring back some of that control around who is around the table. If you're not sure whether you can do this or not under your constitution, so sometimes it's a matter of interpretation of clauses, I encourage you to seek legal advice on that. 
blindly accepting all board nominations doesn't have to happen if you have the capacity to put some parameters around the nominations process and who you put forward to be elected onto the board. I think that's a wise move to make and a worthwhile investment. If you're finding your nominations and your appointment and election processes to become troublesome and you're not getting through the caliber of candidates that you want or need on the board. So those are the three primary areas of a constitution that I see play a significant role in board composition and recruitment. They're worthwhile going back and checking your constitution to see if those clauses are aligned with how your board wants to run and how it needs to run and whether it fits in with the medium to long-term view of your board and organisation going forward. If you have any questions on today's episode, please reach out to me via my website, getonboardaustralia.com.au. Also feel free to leave a comment on this post on the website. You can find all of the previous Board Shorts podcast episodes at getonboardaustralia.com.au forward slash podcast. I encourage you to also send through any suggestions for future topics that you'd like me to cover or any guests that you think would add value to your board career to have on the podcast as well. I'm always happy to find people and cover things on demand to meet the conversations that are happening out in the board world at this time. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to catching you next time on the Board Shorts podcast.